Well, this year I've thought about simplifying our Christmas experience, and so I went online to get a few ideas. But when I Googled keeping Christmas simple, I received these actual suggested titles. 35 gifts your children will never forget. 40 ways to keep your Christmas simple. 44 simple Christmas activities and 30 blog tips to keep Christmas stress-free. After that, I was so overwhelmed that I just gave up and decided we're going to do what we always do. (laughs) But I think, honestly, all of us share a desire for the Advent season to be rich in meaningful experiences, don't we? Uh, Decorating the, the apartment and the house, celebrating family traditions, baking time-honored recipes, and then eating them, uh, enjoying parties, time with uh, family and friends, gift-giving, attending worship services together, and maybe the rare or occasional relaxing in a moment of quiet reflection through the holiday. And we want it to all be as stress and hassle-free as possible, right? So it's in this spirit of irreducible but meaningful simplicity that today we're launching a four-week series uh, of messages on Advent titled Four Words for Christmas. That's it, Four Words for Christmas. Now, Advent, the word Advent means coming or arrival. And in the church, it specifically refers to the uh, four Sundays before Christmas. And for about a thousand years now, the church has been using the Advent season to celebrate the true meaning of this holiday, the arrival or the coming of God himself to the earth. It's done this through worship, drama, singing, scripture reading, hearing encouraging messages, reciting creeds, giving generously, especially through acts of charity, sharing of communion, reflection, meditation, prayer, candle lighting, and silence. Advent celebrations of all kinds through all religious traditions have helped disciples of Jesus maintain a right perspective on the right things in what has potential to be a very distracting and stressful season. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to celebrate four core truths of Christmas, hope and joy and family and love. Now, in its simplest form, at its very core, Advent is about one of these four truths, and we'll take a look at each one uh, a week at a time. And then on Sunday, December 15th, When we look at family, we'll actually celebrate the Vineyard Kids program where the kids are with us, they're leading us in worship, and they're uh, reciting and acting out the actual Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. And that particular day is going to be great because you're invited to a free lunch right after the service. I mean, you know, who's going to pass up a free lunch, right? Got to eat anyway. And then we'll conclude our month-long Advent celebrations with a 4 p.m. candlelight service on Christmas Eve. Let's pray together. Lord, it's with uh, a profound sense of humility and gratefulness in this week of Thanksgiving that we now bow our heads and hearts before you and say thank you for a brand new week, a brand new season. We turn the, the 
calendar of November to the 1st of December, we enter Advent and we say, uh, we, we love you and we thank you and we pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done in our lives and in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our spheres of influence and work and school. Bring your kingdom, Lord, in, in these next 30 days. Meaningfully simple. Help us, Lord, to um, our hearts and minds to wrap around uh, the power and significance of the incarnation that we celebrate. We welcome you here, not just in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids, where they're learning the, the powerful truths of Advent as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All of us love the creativity and the drama and the entertainment of a great story, right? Whether it's the classical literature like Moby Dick, Jane Eyre, the works of Shakespeare, or more recent histories, Chronicles of Narnia, or the Hardy Boys, or Harry Potter, the legal thrillers by John Grisham or James Patterson, or the romance novels of Danielle Steele, or movies like The Godfather, Forrest Gump, Casablanca, or Gone with the Wind. But we would never imagine, would we, beginning one of these books or movies on DVD in the 12th or 14th chapter, would we? No, if we did, we'd miss significant elements of the plot and the setting and the theme, character development. The story just wouldn't make much sense. And yet every year, In Advent celebrations, millions of people do this very thing. We enter the Christmas story halfway through its unfolding, and we miss the larger drama. And so today I thought I would begin by setting just a little bit of context so we might understand the more familiar elements of the story or the elements with which we are accustomed, uh, the angels, the shepherds, Mary Joseph, and the baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men, and about what the world was waiting for. It's really helpful to understand that this holiday that can evoke such powerful uh, moods and memories, some that are really treasured and some that are really painful, uh, that it's really but one chapter in the middle of a much grander narrative. And this narrative goes far beyond the nativity sets that are set on your piano top or your mantle or on the pictures that are painted on your your near-perfect cards that you're mailing to friends and family. This narrative actually begins in the ageless past and will conclude in the ageless future. And in this sense, the Bible tells one grand sweeping story. That all the way through every one of its chapters, in every age and in every era and in every culture of people, one of the themes of the narrative is hope. Now, the Christmas story actually begins way back in the very first book of the Bible. And here in Genesis, the scriptures tell us that when God looked at everything that he had originally created, the plants and birds and rocks and things, he looked at it and said it was good. Mankind had been created innocent, lived in vital relationship with God, but when our spiritual grandparents, Adam and Eve, yielded to the original temptation and ate the fruit that was forbidden right there in the Garden of Eden, it was in this act of pride and self-centeredness and sin that everything changed. 
God's good creation was changed. In that moment of disobedience, Adam and Eve became separated from God and came under God's judgment, the judgment of eternal separation from him. And at that point, the Bible tells us that God pronounced a curse on the man, on the woman, on the earth itself, and the snake, uh, which was really the devil who had tempted Adam and Eve in the form uh, of a snake. Paradise lost. And at that point in the story, it could have all seemed so hopeless. But in the very same breath that God used to curse the earth, he encouraged Adam and Eve as he prophesied. That is another word that would mean he, he foretold the future. And he said to the snake, metaphorically to the devil who inhabited the snake, and I quote, From now on, God said, you and the woman will be enemies. Your offspring and her offspring will be enemies. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your, the serpent's, head, and you'll strike his heel. Now, this is somewhat figurative language, and it's really not for about 4,000 years later at the crucifixion of Jesus that we're actually able to understand what God meant when he spoke that promise in Genesis 3.15. But in a, in a way, God was encouraging his children with a word. It's not always going to stay this way. The future has hope. And so at that very moment, God began by taking the initiative to restore things between himself, between people, and ultimately all of physical creation itself. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 moving forward till its closing chapter in Revelation, it's really a story of this unfolding hope. Hope is a confident Desire, expectation, or anticipation. It's not just wishful thinking. It's the proper response to the promises that God makes. So now, over and over, through history, God would speak a word of encouragement through prophecy, telling the future, prophecy to his people, and he would remind them that the future actually has hope. Why? Because his kingdom was coming. Now, in the early days, admittedly, the language was rather vague and kind of fuzzy. For instance, he told Abraham, we call him the father of faith, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. I have no doubt that Abraham and the other patriarchs had had a difficult time really fully understanding what God could possibly mean with that promise. But God was, in a way, encouraging them with the hope that things wouldn't always stay the same. Things would get better. There was coming a day when he would bless everybody that lived on the earth because of Abraham's offspring. And then as time marched forward, hope continued to be stirred as, as God would use a variety of people in a variety of ways in a variety of, of times. For instance, through the institution of the Passover in Exodus uh, chapter 12, this was when the Hebrews, God's people, were delivered from slavery in Egypt. God was pointing to the hope of future freedom from the slavery of sin. 
this word picture in the, in the Passover was prophetic of, of what God was going to do for all of his people in setting us free. And then through the Psalms of King David, he was the, perhaps the central figure in all the Old Testament. Hope was stirred as David's poems and songs gave glimpses of the future, a future filled with hope because of the Son of God. Psalm 22 speaks of the crucifixion. Uh, Psalm 16 speaks of the Son of God's resurrection. Psalm 110 speak of uh, the role of the Son of God as king over all the earth. And then Psalm 72 is a prophetic picture of his reign, R-E-I-G-N, for eternity. But then years and then decades and then centuries continued to pass, and Israel, God's people, was now ravaged by civil war. It became a divided kingdom. It suffered invasion and ultimately defeat at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, who destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem, carried away the Judeans into exile around 597 B.C. Israel was broken, suffering largely as prisoners of war and slave labor under foreign rule, long removed from the peace and the prosperity and the joy, the abundance of the golden age of Kings David and Solomon, the high water mark. You know, we we would call them today the good old days. Well, in reality, for many of us, they weren't so good after all. They were just old days. But in Israel's case, they really were the good old days of King David and Solomon when when peace and plenty and prosperity and joy ruled the world. Israel now a long ways away from those days. And it's very difficult for us 21st century Americans living in the lap of the most prosperous nation that world history has ever known with every creature comfort imaginable, our own personal trials and difficulties notwithstanding. It's difficult for us to even imagine what God's people, the Israelites, may have felt at this point. But you could perhaps, as an exercise in in attempting to identify, uh, think of the most depressing or hopeless or oppressive circumstance in your life. And that might begin to give you a, a, a sense of the despair that God's people would have been experiencing year after year, decade after decade, century after century. In those dark and despairing days, God would occasionally send a prophet, and their writings fill the Bible, the clean section that you don't visit very often. They're called the major and the minor prophets. And and the the essence of the prophetic writing, beyond uh, God's reminder of judgment for people who are disobedient, was actually, uh, the purpose was to kindle hope that things weren't always going to stay the way they are right now. And so he would use Daniel and Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea or Micah or the Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, uh, Okay, you haven't been reading that one very often, I can tell. Well, we'll stick to Zechariah. Uh, 
And, and, and God was saying, things aren't going to stay the way they are right now. He was painting a prophetic picture of hope, a confident expectation. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophets pointed to a new day. They often called it the day of the Lord or the day of God's kingdom. And the, the message was that God himself would personally intervene in the history of the world. And he would bring peace and justice and freedom from oppression, prosperity and blessing once again. For example, the prophet Isaiah declared it in these familiar words at this time of year, this way, Isaiah chapter 9, where we read, The people who walk in darkness, no, I'm going to read, I'm going to skip. Well, yeah, let's, I'm going to preface, I think, what's on the, um, what's on the screen with, with, the, with this phrase. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. We'll guarantee it. Jeremiah the prophet said this, For the time is coming, says the Lord, When I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, he'll be a king who rules with wisdom, and he will do what is just and right throughout the land. These were two among many. But year after year, God's people would would cling to these words of hope and comfort as they awaited the arrival of the Messiah. But quite honestly, that day, and the hope uh, that that surrounded it, the hope that it offered, seemed so far away. Imagine for a moment that you're waiting for something that never, ever arrives. You got kids and grandkids that can't wait till Christmas morning to open their presents. What if, after the 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 building up of the excitement post Thanksgiving? And the, and the arrival of Christmas morning, the opening of the presents was promised, but never actually delivered. You think you'd have a few disappointed kids and grandkids? What if that happened not just one year, but year after year, after year after year, after decade after decade? And while certainly the analogy is stretched to this point to compare the arrival of Christmas morning and opening of presents to the arrival of God himself in the Messiah for God's people, nevertheless, the analogy works to a degree. Imagine waiting for something that never, ever arrived, year after year after year. Well, then the New Testament opens, and God's people are now living under the oppressive rule of the Romans, pagan Romans. They were heavily compromised with local politicians who uh, were, were crooked men, and they were sliding deeper and deeper into debt and despair because they were taxed. But there was a faithful remnant, a few of God's people 
hunkered down, holding unswervingly to God's declaration. The declaration that got started way back in the Garden of Eden, that was reiterated in the covenant with Abraham, the pledge of a godly kingly line through David, and then the hope stirred by all of the prophets. They were waiting for the Messiah. And now, in the birth of Jesus himself, God is stepping into a broken, messed up world in a very offbeat and unexpected manner to bring hope. As he inaugurated this kingdom, it's finally here. It's almost as if in the birth story, the, the, the narrative story of this chapter of, of, of the sweeping meta narrative of the whole Bible, it's as if God was like opening the floodgates of hope once again. Gabriel, a mighty messenger angel of the Lord, appeared to Zechariah. He was a priest, and uh, he and his wife Elizabeth, though now quite old and unable to have children themselves, uh, the angel said that you're going to have actually your own son, your own son named John, and John is going to pave the way for this coming Messiah. Gabriel said, you'll have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from before his birth. He'll turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And then the angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin, a young virgin named Mary, and he encouraged her uh, that she was actually a favored woman with these words from Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. Don't be frightened, Mary, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you're to name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he'll be, reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, then upon visiting her Aunt Elizabeth, who was already now six months pregnant with John, Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit and declared this song. It was a song filled with hope. God embraced his chosen child Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies. He piled them high. It's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham up until now. And then when this uh, baby John was finally born. His father, Zechariah, uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he exclaimed uh, this message of hope. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He, God, has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David. He's stretching back now a thousand years into history to remind us it was God's promise through David that this happened, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we'll be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He's been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant that he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We've been rescued from our enemies, and we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, John, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light 
to those of us who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us finally to the path of peace. And then lastly, there was an old man named Simeon. The Bible describes him as righteous, meaning he lived a a good life. He lived in Jerusalem, and he was eagerly awaiting, like the remnant of Israel, for the arrival of the Messiah. He was waiting for God to come and intervene and, and bring us back to the good old days. And when Joseph and Mary, the new parents, brought the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated on his eighth day, like any good Jewish parent would have done, Simeon sees the baby, is filled with God's Holy Spirit, and he speaks out a word of prophecy. Lord, now I can die in peace. He was saying, like, my bucket list is complete. I've seen the baby. As you promised me, I've seen the Savior that you've given to all people. He's a light to reveal God to the nations, the glory of your people. Can you just hear the hope in all of those powerful declarations? In many, many different ways, through many different people, it was as if God was saying, finally, now you see, things don't always have to stay the way they are. That's what hope does. Hope kindles an expectation that the way things are is not necessarily the way that they have to stay. Did you ever receive such awesome news, experience something so dramatic that it almost seemed too good to be true? You know, it's like we're stunned, aren't we? In in a moment of like almost unbelief. We we can't believe this is so good. I, I remember very clearly our experience in Christmas of 1996. I know that's a long time. Some of you weren't even born then. But so our minivan... Uh, our, our 95 Dodge Caravan was 11 years old, had 140,000 miles on it by then. It had suffered mercilessly as the church's fleet vehicle for junior and, and senior high school retreats. And you know what that does. One engine had already given up the ghost. Our oldest daughter was heading off to college. We didn't have funds for a new one. But as the Christmas Advent tradition goes uh, in our family, we spend the afternoon and evening at my parents' house. They live right over here at 6141 Evergreen Circle, uh, it, just, just, just east of Richwoods High. And when it came time to opening the gifts, uh, we received a check from my parents for $15,000. That was the biggest chunk of money I'd seen in my married life. But, I mean... <laughs> It literally blew us away. It was like, it was so stunning, we could hardly believe it. It was so unexpected. And then, of course, it enabled us to buy the 97 Dodge Caravan that we drove until just last year when it finally gave up the ghost. Totally unexpected. That that gift brought us an incredible degree of hope. No doubt you you've had a similar experience where you receive such good news that it took your breath away. That's what these hope-filled announcements actually did to God's people who were living when Jesus the Messiah actually arrived. It's too good to be true, and that's perhaps one reason God had to say it over and over and over and over again, because people just otherwise wouldn't believe it. 
It was too good to be true. But as we saw this morning, God was saying, I am visiting and redeeming my people. The Savior, a mighty Savior, is coming to rescue all of us from our enemies. And he's going to do it in glorious strength and awesome power. And woven like a thread through all of those prophetic declarations was God's announcement that he was bringing, finally, joy and peace and gladness. I love the expression, his mercy is piled high as his kingdom comes. Now, that's real hope. Now, the baby Jesus that was born in that hillside animal shelter in Bethlehem grew up, and he launched his itinerant ministry with a startling, hope-filled announcement. He said, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed. The word simply means enabled. He has enabled me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So Jesus was announcing God's kingdom is here. Things don't have to stay the way they are. And then in his words and his works and his way of life, Jesus offered hope. As he welcomed men and women back into relationship with the living God, as he mercifully forgave sin and mistakes, as he healed the sick, met physical needs, as he restored those who were marginalized at the edge of society and brought them back into community. Over and over, Jesus spoke and, and, and showed He did the show-and-tell model that God's kingdom actually had really come. God wasn't making a list and checking it twice, finding out who's naughty and nice. But his love, his inexhaustible, never-ending love, was for for all people everywhere, and that his kingdom was for, for, for everyone. Jesus showed that the wholeness and shalom of God's original intention was actually here, now coming in 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 Jesus. Shalom. It is a very rich Old Testament Hebrew word that means peace and completeness and wholeness and joy to be set free from the devil's power and restored to the order of God's originally intended creation in the garden. And that's what Jesus was bringing. God's kingdom was here. God had personally intervened in the history of the world just like he had said in Genesis, just like he promised to Abraham, just like was written about by King David, and just like all the prophets had prophesied, God had come, but not in a way that anybody expected. Instead of a a dramatic show of power like royalty normally would have, he was born in the middle of uh, of the age in humility and weakness. His coming didn't announce the the completion of the the world as as all of the people at that time would have been expecting, that God would have intervened at the end of time and cleaned everything up. Rather, in the middle of time, Jesus shows up in weakness and humility. And these are the words that Jesus actually used uh, to, to describe his coming to make things better and bring hope. He said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why so that no one need be destroyed. 
By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. John 3, 16 to 18, John 10, 10. So Advent is filled with hope, a confident expectation, an anticipation that because God's kingdom actually came in Jesus, then things don't have to stay the way they are. He came to give us a whole and lasting life as we trust him. And in the coming of the kingdom of Jesus, the power and blessings of the future age to come have actually now broken into the middle of this present evil age. Yeah, there's coming a day at the end of the age when the kingdom's going to be completed, when the sweeping narrative arrives at its never-ending final chapter in the new heaven and the new earth. That day's still coming. But in the middle of it all, the power and blessings of the future age have broken into the present. And so the question I want to finish with by asking today is, where are you feeling hopeless in the Advent Christmas season right now? Are you feeling lost, maybe disconnected or separated from God, or unsure of where you stand with with God, maybe because of sin or pride or, or a hidden addiction or bondage or maybe some other guilt, or maybe you're, you're hungry to, to know God personally or to hear from God, as it were, or to grow in, in your relationship with him. But you, you feel like bound and stuck where you are. Hope says Jesus can change that. Our relationships that you have with others may be broken through hurt or betrayal or divorce or bitterness or unforgiveness. Hope says Jesus can change that. Are you unemployed? Are you underemployed? Maybe you don't like what you do. Maybe you think of yourself as a failure. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you're depressed uh, because of injustice or pain or loss or some wrong that you've suffered. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you feel stressed out because of the pace and speed of life, you know, trying to raise the kids right and trying to live within your means. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you're a victim, a victim of ageism, of racism, of sexism. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you wrestle with insecurity or loneliness or fear. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you struggle with a health issue. Hope says Jesus can change that. Maybe you've lost someone in this past year. Maybe you broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Life hasn't turned out the way you'd planned. Hope says Jesus can change that. We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about attending church. We're not talking about turning over a new leaf through sheer willpower and determination, determining in the year 2014 you'll live better than you did in 2013. All those things are great, and you probably ought to do all those. You know, God bless you if you do. That's not what we're talking about, though. We're talking about the real God in the real Jesus who 
punctuated history with an arrival of his kingdom to say things don't have to stay the way they are. My arrival means things can change. Jesus came bringing hope. Jesus instructed those of us who follow him to pray in a prayer that's since been known as the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And he taught us to pray this phrase, Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. You see, we won't need to pray this prayer in the eternal state. We pray it now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it's done in heaven. And at the very heart of the prayer is an expression of desire to see things change. Jesus told us to pray that. It's petitioning God the Father to break into this present evil age, our everyday getting up, going to work and school life with his love, with his mercy, with his power. And in response to that prayer from God's children all over the globe, in every race, every culture, in every age, God, the Holy Spirit, is moving to see things change, sometimes small and imperceptible in ways you can hardly measure, and on other occasions in dramatic and supernatural ways, and then everything in between. God invites us to see things change as we pray to Jesus. And then he invites us to partner with him in extending his kingdom to others We are the ambassadors of hope. Jesus is good news, otherwise called the gospel. If the Jesus we're sharing is not good news, then it's not the gospel of the Bible. Jesus is good news that things don't have to stay the way they are. May God help our Advent season this year be filled with a renewed sense of hope. Lord, I pray that you would put power on your word to our lives, your word that stretches back thousands of years that things don't have to stay the way they are and that the coming of Jesus means things can change. And I pray, God, for every person in our church family and those with whom we're in relationship, that those pockets of need would yield to the kingdom and we'd see hope burst forth in seeing you change. Lord, as we now give our hearts and and our hands to you in worship, we pray that you'd receive these gifts that we give to you in the offering and the songs that we sing uh, to music. Receive them for what they are, tokens that say we love you. And as small and as insignificant as they might seem in the scope of eternity, receive them for what, what we intend behind them. Bless those, Lord, who give and those who earnestly desire to give but cannot. Receive, Lord, the intentions of our heart in your name. Amen.